When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 157 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most interesting and talented actors of his generation, a 61-year-old who burst onto the scene 21 years ago with a tiny indie that he wrote, directed, and starred in, which brought him an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay to go with his Oscar nomination for Best Actor, and who hasn't stopped surprising and impressing people ever since, Billy Bob Thornton. Thornton, who was born in Arkansas and raised between there and Texas, came out west with dreams of becoming a musician something that he ultimately did with his band The Boxmasters, but not before many years of struggle and hardship drove him towards acting and screenwriting as well. After a period of sporadic unemployment and even homelessness, he eventually began landing acting jobs on TV series, and then figured out that he could write better roles for himself than the sort others were offering him, which he did starting with the 1992 film One False Move, and then again with the movie that changed everything for him, 1996's Sling Blade. Sling Blade, which was made for less than $1 million, proved a critical and commercial sensation, which, along with its many accolades, turned Thornton, at the age of 41, into an A-lister. Two years later, he was Oscar-nominated again for his supporting performance in A Simple Plan, and he soon was starring in blockbusters like Armageddon and was married to Angelina Jolie. In 2001 alone, he starred in Barry Levinson's Bandits, the Coen Brothers' The Man Who Wasn't There, and Mark Foster's Monster's Ball landing Golden Globe nominations for Bandits and The Man Who Wasn't There. And then in 2003, he appeared in two films that have become cult classics, Love Actually and Bad Santa. But what followed was a decade or so that was more hit or miss, with some critical and or commercial bombs like 2004's The Alamo and the 2005 remake of Bad News Bears. But in 2014, Thornton surged back to the top of his game as a twisted villain in the first season of Fargo, Noah Fowley's reimagining for FX of the Coen Brothers' 1996 film of the same name. Thornton, for his performance, was awarded the Best Actor in a Miniseries or TV Movie Golden Globe Award and was nominated for the corresponding Emmy. And in late 2016, he returned to TV and, for my money, was better than ever in the first season of the Amazon drama series Goliath which was written and executive produced by David E. Kelly and Jonathan Shapiro, and in which Thornton plays a brilliant but unconventional lawyer named Billy McBride. For it, he already was awarded the Best Actor in a Drama Series Golden Globe Award earlier this year and is likely to receive a corresponding Emmy nomination in July. 
Over the course of a conversation in Thornton's trailer on the Raleigh Studios lot in Hollywood, where he was at work on the first episode of the second season of Goliath, Thornton and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how shortly after he arrived in Los Angeles while working as a waiter at a private event, Billy Wilder, of all people, offered him some advice and encouragement that proved extremely valuable. How Sling Blade evolved over the course of a decade, from Thornton talking in the mirror to himself into a one-man show and then a Sundance short and ultimately a standout of the 1990s indie boom. How Thornton handled the sudden fame that came with Sling Blade's success, as well as the heartbreak that came with his subsequent directorial efforts, 2000's All the Pretty Horses and 2012's Jane Mansfield's Car. Why he feels pay cable and streaming now offers storytelling opportunities of the sort that indie filmmaking used to, and why he relates to his Goliath character as much as any that he's ever played in any medium, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I guess are you just right off the set of season two? Is that what's going on right now? Mm, yeah, yeah. We just started season two last Tuesday mm-hmm. and just got off tour with the Boxmasters ah, with cool. our band. Yeah, so that's that's what I was doing. We've been home for about a month. So I had a few weeks to, you know, adjust yeah. to uh, this life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, with with this podcast, we go through the, the whole story. So it's been fun prepping and revisiting years of, of profiles and things. And we always just begin, though, with a, a basic. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Then after high school, I uh, moved to Houston, Texas, a uh, suburb of Houston, and then came out to California. I've actually been in California for 37 years. But back home, my dad was a high school basketball coach and a history teacher and ultimately ended up working at a cable factory. And he passed away when I was 17, so I didn't have a lot of time with my dad. Mm-hmm. My mom, you know, really raised us, basically, and my, my, myself and my two brothers. I remember the job she had when, at one point when I was in elementary school. She was a telephone operator. That's back when you actually <laughs> had to talk to a telephone operator. Right, right. I mean, that's where I grew up, and at the time I grew up, music was everything. Music and sports, and for me it happened to be baseball. But I was around and old enough to have seen the Beatles on, on the Ed Sullivan Show. Mm-hmm. 1964, I was eight years old when I saw the Beatles. But when we were eight, we were already ready to go. I mean, we, you know, when, this, when the Beatles happened, we, 
we didn't act like eight-year-olds. It's like, we want to do that. And my town, the town I grew up in, I was born in Hot Springs, but raised in a town called Malvern. And it was about probably nine or 10,000 people. And we had so many bands in that town. It was a really rich time. One of the things I read was just that it wasn't, as far as as far as just growing up was during those first seventeen years, and you know I'm not meaning to push the you know as much as you want to get into it, but just it wasn't smooth sailing the whole way, and and was that just sort of how that shapes shapes a guy when that's the beginning of your life? Oh yeah, I, yeah. I had you know my childhood wasn't exactly full of cash dollars and things <laughs> like that. So yeah, it, it, music was my. Refuge, yeah. you know, yeah. that's what I turned to, and and sports, but but music was really my thing, and I was one of those geeks who read every liner note and every record, mm-hmm. you know, and knew all that stuff. So yeah, I was in bands all that all that way, and uh, that is where I always disappeared. So I started out in music and did it forever, and the only decade that I haven't really been active in music was in the '80s, and that's when I was starving to death and right. out here in LA in the beginning right. you know I had right. no means to do much of anything well definitely going to ask you about that but really even before acting originally it wasn't music and acting it wasn't music and screenwriting it was music and baseball right that was you were yeah. a pretty good ball player and then had that had you not had some sort of a I guess it was like a freak thing you might have pursued that even further yeah, I mean, that was the idea. I was a junk pitcher in high school, and uh, I was pretty good. And I, I went to a Kansas City Royals traveling camp, and they never even get to see me, got to see me throw because I got my collarbone broken in their camp. Just like and, a stray ball. Yeah, stray ball. But when you look at it this way, let's say I was good enough to even get in the minor league system with some team, and uh, let's say I lasted two or three years in that, or let's say you made it to the majors somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. I would have been retired for, you know, 30 years now. <laughs> so when you think about it, I mean, as an actor and a musician, you can do it, you know, especially an actor. I mean, you can right. you can be 95 right. and do that. Right. So, yeah. Well, okay, so after the baseball was out of the picture, but before you left to go, I guess, New York or L.A., you were trying a lot of different things back, I guess, at this point in Texas, right? What were some of the things you were up to? You mean job-wise? Yeah, like a lot of physical labor, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, that was starting from the time I was 14. When I was 14, I hauled hay and then worked at a grocery store that my family knew, the the guy that ran this little grocery store, and he had a farm, and I hauled hay out there in the summer. But I worked at a machine shop, a sawmill, a storm door factory, shoveled asphalt for the highway department, cut weeds for the county highway department, yeah, I did all kinds of physical labor jobs, drove a truck, worked with heavy equipment yeah. for a while, you know, all that stuff. And uh, Did you imagine that might be the long-term thing? I mean, for, for at any point, or you always knew you wanted out of there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I never—I I only had jobs because I had to have them. I, I, I didn't have a life goal of being a sawmill worker, no. <laughs> uh, I always knew it was entertainment or sports for me. That was all I ever thought about. So who is Tom Epperson, and how did you guys know each other? And then I guess it was sort of a joint commitment to to bounce town, right? Yeah. Tom was four years older than me, and so I was a kid that was picked on in the neighborhood. They were our neighbors. We lived on the poor street next to the more wealthy street, so our, our backyards almost adjoined there, you know, and Tom's dad was a judge there in town, and... 
So, you know, we, we didn't hang out much in school because, like I said, he was older than me. But then once I graduated high school, he and I started hanging out a little bit. So we were neighbors. Our mothers were best friends. So when he, he said he wanted to be a screenwriter and we went to New York first, he said, you ought to go with me. I didn't have anything else going on except for I think I was you know, working for the county or whatever. And about what age would this have been for you? Uh, well, we went to New York when I was about 20, mm-hmm. I think. And we stayed 10 hours. It scared the <laughs> hell out of us. So we didn't stay long. That was 1977. And and then ultimately, you know, we, we ended up coming out here together to California. And it was, uh, you know, pretty rough road for a long time. Well, let's, uh, if, if I can, I mean, really at that point, he wanted to be a screenwriter, but you were still interested in, in pursuing music out here. That was the primary thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, well, I'll come out here and get in a band. I, I'd been in all those bands back home and toured. I'd worked as a roadie for several years. And so I'd been around, you know, the bigger world of music some, too, because our band opened for big names, and I roadied for some of those big names. So I'd... I'd been around it, but I got to L.A., and, you know, it'll kick your butt. Yeah, you, you learn pretty quickly it ain't that easy. And What year did you get out here? 1981, in uh, June of 81, I think it was. Okay, so I got to read back a quote from another interview. This was, this was you telling the interviewer, quote, The first six or seven years in California, I lived hand-to-mouth. I was homeless a couple of times. I just tended to park up with whoever would let me stay with them. So, yeah, it was a struggle. In the meantime, I guess, what were some of the things that you did to— when you could get a job and was there any point during those early years when you just were ready to go back or you were it was worth sticking it out well i always had this bizarre i'm i'm the most optimistic sort of pessimist in the world (laughs) (laughs) i i always think that everything's gonna get better i don't know i just have this thing i mean it's in my words uh, sometimes i sound you know like a pessimist sometimes but i I always have thought that things will work out, you know, and I, and back then I did. I just thought tomorrow's the day, you know. Plus, I didn't have much to go back to, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if I'd had some easy life back there, I would have gone back maybe. You never know, but there wasn't much to go back to, so I thought I'd as soon suffer out here as back there. I kept going, and, you know, things started getting a little better, you know, you know just a step at a time. But, you know, it was, For any uh, struggling actors, though, they, they should probably just— They'll appreciate hearing Shakey's Pizza Parlor. Oh, that yeah, was one. yeah, I worked at Shakey's. Yeah, I did that for about a year and a half. And, and what uh, else? Some balloon configurations? Yeah, I worked uh, blowing up balloons for a party company. I worked as a waiter for a catering company. I sold ink pens over the phone up in the Taft building at Hollywood and Vine for about two weeks. All while auditioning or things during the day, is that what it was? Yeah, Yeah. trying to get around auditions, and I got in a theater group and an acting class through a guy we met out here, and just thought I'd give it a shot, because the guy said, hey, you ought to just try this, you know? And then uh, Tom and I worked at one of those private mail receiving centers. He and I both worked there. It's right at, by Greenblatt's Deli. Uh, It's not there anymore, but Tom was the mail sorter. And I was the I worked for the answering service. I answered the telephone for people that had a answering service right, and a mailbox right. there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, one of the amazing stories I came across, which I hope you won't mind, you know, re- recounting for people who don't know it, is in the course of working for the catering company, there's an event at I guess Stanley Donnan's house, right? And you have an encounter that was actually pretty prophetic with a cool person. So maybe just. 
What happened and did it change anything for as far as your outlook, your approach? Oh, it absolutely did. Uh, yeah, I mean, the short version is I, I was working at, at uh, Christmas Eve for uh, this catering company. I was passing out hors d'oeuvres and I'd borrowed a tuxedo that didn't fit me. And this little guy with a sort of German accent starts talking to me and it turned out it's Billy Wilder, you know. And when I was talking to him, I'd you know, I knew who Billy Wilder was, but I didn't put the two together at the time. And cause there are a lot of people at that party, you know, uh, especially a lot of old Hollywood, like Sammy Kahn, the old songwriter, was there, who, you know, wrote a lot of famous songs. And uh, Dudley Moore was there and Debbie Reynolds and, you know, people like that. He said, so you want to be an actor? He got, I said, oh, how did you know, you know? And, <laughs> and I, did, I wasn't clued into that whole thing about how actors are, right. are all waiters. But anyway, he, he was talking to me about how it's such a hard road to be an actor. you got to get in line with everybody. He goes, if you can create your own way, you know, create your own characters, write your own stuff. He said, can you write? And I said, well, uh, yes, sir, actually, I've been doing some of that. And he said, write, do your own thing, you know, be different. Don't, don't just wait around, you know, to see if you get picked. And I started doing a one-man show in the theater and started creating my own characters and writing and all that. So and one of those yeah. characters, just to string it to what we're going to eventually come to, ended up being Carl Childers, right? Yeah, from Sling Blade. That yeah, was amazing. That's right. So yeah. now, when did it really start to get going? Because by the '90s, you're in a couple. You're a regular on a couple of of series. You'd already now had a screenplay, I think, with Tom that went and turned out nicely with one false move but pre sling blade how did it how did it build up to that point well in the beginning i was doing these showcases for actors you'd go pay like 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it was and people would run these showcases and they would invite casting directors and directors and i I did a lot of those and got in some little independent film you know just with one scene and then I, I started getting little bits and pieces here and there finally got an agent tom and i got a literary agent they turned me on to a talent agency uh roe diamond and susie schwartz were the women and i'll never forget them they're an agency called century artists and I'd get out on these little things. I never was very good at auditioning, but I, I got little parts on like Matlock and Knott's Landing and you know shows like yeah. that, and just a few lines on them. And then Tom and I sold a screenplay, or optioned a screenplay to David Geffen's film company at that time through this agent. And that's really kind of, that gave us enough money to actually be able to start mm-hmm. trying things, you know. And then ultimately we got a three picture deal with Disney and with Touchstone Pictures, and we wrote a script for them, and it never got made. But And we wrote two or three that never got made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're making money at yeah. it, and also doctored up a couple of scripts, you know, things like that. And we finally got One False Move, which was originally called Hurricane. Mm-hmm. Then we changed it to Star City, and then the studio people changed it to One False Move, and we hated the title at right. first. <laughs> we thought it sounded like a B-movie. <laughs> but... Roger Ebert really loved the movie. So back in those days, Roger Ebert was very good to us, and he he liked us as writers, and then later really liked me as an actor. So we owed Roger a lot. We owed him a great debt. So yeah, after One False Move, I was doing, it got us a name within the business, not not so much with the public. Right. At that point, were you thinking of yourself as having a likelier future as an actor or as a writer? You know, I, I didn't really think about it much, to tell you the truth. I was working more as an actor because, yeah. I mean, obviously writing takes a while and then it takes a while to get them made. So, and I had a lot more uh, fun as an actor, you know, and that's kind of what it seemed like I was, you know, more natural at. 
Writing, I was always great with characters and dialogue. Structure was my weakness usually, and Tom, that was Tom's strength. So we are like Jack Spratt and his yeah. wife, you know? So uh, it worked out, out okay, yeah. 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 So, yeah, we kept writing scripts together, and I kept getting more parts and, you know, did some things here and there after One False Move. And I was moving up. I was becoming a working actor, but still not a real name. And then when I finally, my agent talked to these guys, these kids in New York that just had a little bit of money into making this movie that I directed, The Sling Blade, that's, that's what kind of literally the next day, you know, everything changed. And when you say these kids in New York, are we, are we talking about... The shooting gallery. The shooting gallery. Okay. Just to look again at the evolution of that, because that was such a big turning point. Childers, you've been doing since 86, so that was like 10 years earlier already. You had done this short in 94 that went to Sundance and involved the same character. But now, how do you convince, I guess it would have been Merrimax and the Weinsteins or whoever initially gives you the, the financing, how do you convince them not only to let you be in this movie that you've written, but also to direct it. Because, I mean, the, the great story everybody loves to refer back to is Stallone getting to, right. he wouldn't let anybody else star in his movie that he'd written, but he, even he didn't get to direct it. So how did you, how did that part of it come together where somebody was willing to finance it under those terms? Well, actually, Miramax just distributed it. They bought it for distribution. Okay. Uh, it was financed by the shooting gallery, and they okay. they had only done like, one or two movies. I think one of the movies they'd done was for $60,000. <laughs> so they just were dealing with my agent, and my agent said, you ought to meet these guys because they, you know, they're not, they're sort of outside Hollywood, and you're kind of an outside Hollywood <laughs> guy, so I think you get along. And they said, look, we don't have any money to pay directors, you know, or writers, but if you have anything you want to write and direct that you really want to star in and stuff, you know, we really love what they would loved one false move. And they said, we will finance it, but we just can't pay you a bunch of money, but we'll give you 50% of it. Worked out. Which at, the, which at that time I thought <laughs> right. well, it could be 50% right. percent of like $50. Right, right, you know? right. But meanwhile, you assembled a unbelievable cast of, of, other people to that bought into your idea. So how did that even, you know, like Duval, I know since has become, seems like kind of a mentor, but how did he even come into the picture? Well, I knew him before. We Actually, he had the same agent over at William Morris that I had, and he hooked us up. And Duval wanted Tom and, and me to write a script for him, which we did, and it was made. Uh, and it was called A Family Thing. He did it with James Earl Jones. And so I knew I knew him, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind coming and doing this sort of cameo in the movie uh, in Sling Blade, and he said, "Sure, well." And then right after that, he did the Apostle and asked right. me to come do the same right. thing for him. Right. That that whole thing, in terms of the cast, there were there were just people that I knew. I mean, J. T. Walsh I knew from auditioning with him. I mean, you know, like I'd see him at auditions, and right. we kind of got friendly that way. And John Ritter, I'd done this TV show called Hearts of Fire right. with him. And Dwight Yoakam, I met through a mutual friend of ours uh, who was Dwight's manager at the time. And I'd seen Dwight in one movie. He'd only done, I think, one movie, mm -hmm. maybe two at the time, smaller parts. And I just thought he had something there, you know. You guys are still going still, at it with like this. Still, like my best uh, friend, Goliath, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, a long time, you know. And But, yeah, Miramax bought it, 
bought Sling Blade and, and distributed it. And without them, I mean, who knows? It could have no, nobody may have ever seen it, you know. So we're really lucky. But we made the movie that what what the shooting gallery financed it for was like nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. And it ended up, just to remind people, the, the context in which it goes out into the world, correct me if any of this is wrong, but basically this is the the heart of the indie boom. So you've got Miramax puts it out in, in I think, initially lim- quite limited release yeah, and then expanded it. Theaters, yeah. Gets very good reviews, costs less than a million, as you say, but gross nearly 25. And then the interesting thing is also, I guess, that was an early example of where screeners where maybe Academy members were not going to necessarily go see it in the theater, but right. you guys got them their VHSs and yeah. suddenly they watched it. It was easy enough to just pop that in and they got very much on board. So could you ever have imagined that this little movie that, right. you know, nobody was not on anybody's radar suddenly is nominated. You're nominated for best actor, best adapted screenplay, just the life that this all took on must have, even taking you a little bit of that. Oh, I I didn't expect it at all. I thought I really made the movie just for my myself and my friends, and my family. Yeah, I thought those were the people who would see it. And you know who helped us out a lot? It was so funny because other actors and directors were coming on talk shows at that time promoting their movies, right. and they had seen it. Oh, so they liked they'd it. seen either screeners or they'd been to a screening right. of of right. it. You know, because Miramax would screen it. Right. You know, for different groups and. I remember Julie Roberts and uh, Mel Gibson were doing, I think it might have been Larry King. I can't remember what show mm-hmm. it was. I think it was Larry King. Mm-hmm. And they just kept talking about Sling Blade. <laughs> and so it was like, wow, thanks, guys. And right. uh, so, you know, those kind of things get it out there to people, get the word out there. If, if other people like it and they mention it, you know, uh, and I try to do that sometimes. If I see a young artist of any type, whether it's a musician or an actor or filmmaker or a movie you know and, and you can mention it during your thing it's it really helps and yeah. i remember ron howard did the same thing for it ron had seen it either at a screening or on a screener and and ron was on some talk show talking about it so you know it just got a buzz That's about great. it and then once it was nominated for the best actor and for screenplay then that's when I started getting calls from people like Gregory Peck and Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando. And I, just, I couldn't believe it. I had no idea what was happening to me. Well, before we move on from, from Sling Blade, I guess I just, the obvious question that I didn't ask is, what was it about this, this character and this story that intrigued you enough to stick with it for a decade to see it through all of, the, all of these hurdles that we've been talking about? What, why was this a story you wanted to tell so, so much? Well, I, I was raised on Southern literature, and that's the way I write. And it was just a story that I loved and a character that I loved. And it was, you know, partly truth, partly fiction. And I don't know. It's, it's like any anything anybody writes. It's like when I would read things like Tobacco Road or Grapes of Wrath or any of those kind of things. Those, those were the stories that got to me, and I wanted to write my own stories like that. I, I read something where you were just having a bad day one day, and you look in the mirror, and this posture and the voice, and everything, it just oh, like yeah. came to you? Is that true? Yeah, the face, the facial thing and the voice came to me when I was working on a cable movie or something. I had like one scene, and it was really hot. I was wearing a wool conductor's uniform, and I started making faces at myself <laughs> in the mirror because I looked so stupid. And I made that that voice and everything. So that that part of it came from me self-loathing in the, in the mirror. Yeah. So you win the 
Oscar, I just rewatched the acceptance speech this morning on YouTube because I was wondering, you know, just to remember how what you said, what it how it all went. I mean, that was a very popular result. People I think you got a standing ovation. I was curious why you thanked Elizabeth Taylor. Was it just that she had reached out? She did very early on. And she really took me under her wing and made me part of the group that hung out, hung out at her house and wow. everything. She was very kind to me. I used to go over to her house and just sit and talk to her and Sometimes nobody would be there. Sometimes there'd be a lot of people there. And like I said, through that whole group I met, you know, I got to know Gregory Peck mm-hmm. and his family very well. And Roddy McDowell, another guy, really kind to me during those days. And, and yeah, and Brando called me, wanted me to come to his house. And I was really nervous, but I did it. That's you, know, awesome. you, you can't pass up on yeah. that. And uh, <laughs> so then he started calling me every now and then. We'd talk on the phone. And yeah, I, th- I thanked Elizabeth Taylor because she. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, you see Elizabeth Taylor, she was like this matinee idol, you know. She was, uh, you know, you can't believe her even. T- it's like talking to, you think you're talking to Bugs Bunny. It's like you don't even think she's real, you know. And all of a sudden you know her. And I just wanted to thank her because I couldn't believe I was swept up in all that and that she was so kind to me. Was there any downside to this, what must have felt like very sudden and was very sudden, change in your life of suddenly being a person who many, many people knew, whereas just a few months earlier, I guess pre-Telluride is where it all started. It was a very different existence. So how did you handle it all? Was it smooth or was there a downside to it? I think the downside to it started to come later. I mean, in the beginning, it was all fun and games. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the longer you're famous, the the, the less fun it, it is. I mean, believe me, I appreciate it. I mean, I still to this day appreciate it. And I, and fans, I'm all for them. Right. I mean, you got to have your fans. And people, a lot of friends of mine, they say, why do you stand there and take pictures of people for so long or sign all those things? I say, well, those are the people that put my kids through school. You right. know, it's like they... You owe it to them. And, nice. and, you know, I mean, the paparazzi thing, you know, at certain times in my life has been kind of a, you know, pain in the ass. Well, so <laughs> if without uh, without belaboring the <laughs> – well, the two little, I guess you could say, maybe hiccups, things that probably did not bring wonderful, wonderful things with them were two years after Sling Blade, the first time that as a famous person you'd had a – a movie that didn't go as well as you would have probably liked was Armageddon? I mean, Armageddon was actually fine. Armageddon went very well. I mean, I, I, I loved doing it. You know, sometimes I'll put down, you know, big splashy movies and right. that kind of thing. But, I mean, this was the first time. It's like my manager at the time, who's still my manager. He said, he said you got to do movies that get your picture on a bus yeah. stop. Yeah. And I actually had a very great experience making Armageddon, and I, and I think that movie holds up to this no, day. I, I, I get, I yeah. enjoy it, but I'm, I'm but, saying more like where you just come off a movie that was sort of universally embraced by. Oh, I see what you're saying. Here's yeah, yeah, a movie yeah, yeah. And, that and, and, took and, some flack. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess the good news about a movie like that is, is they don't usually get on the actor as much as they do the director <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> so, That's true. you know, I mean, I got good reviews from it. So I guess, yeah. you know, when you're when you're in something like that, you if, if you come out of it, OK, then I guess that's the best you can hope for. And, but and you're already on to the next thing anyway, uh, by the time you are. Yeah. Which but, in your case was some simple plan was which was another Oscar nomination. So it couldn't have been. Yeah. And I'd, I'd done primary colors right before Armageddon, right. which was, you know, pretty well, well received. Yeah. And I got, you know, a lot, I got some awards for that. So it, 
it kind of continued all through that period of time, you know. And then, you know, I would do, it's like with anybody, you do two or three movies in a row that are very well received, and you got one that's not, and then you got one that makes money but is not well received, and you got one that doesn't make money and is well received. I mean, it's you got all kinds. You just you weather know? it. And then, but yeah. when you hit those that are, that have everything, right. it's pretty incredible, yeah, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I I guess the other thing that you may have been referring to there, where where the paparazzi started to potentially be a little annoying, would have been the result in a way of. So you do this movie in '99, pushing ten, mm-hmm. and I guess that was the beginning of you and Miss Jolie. Right. And you then are that period when you're married for like three or four years. Right. Uh, you were very much in the public eye. Sure. What was the impact of that as far as professionally? Do you think that it seems like some people were just a little bewildered by all of it? And as you look back now, what do you make of that whole era? Always, oh, it was a great and fun time for yeah. me. I mean, you know, she and I are still friends, and yeah. and. You know, we just had separate, different views yeah. on our lifestyle. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, she's she's more worldly person than I am. I'm more of a you know guy that sticks around the house, you know, unless I'm working. But we had a we had a great time. Yeah, I mean the paparazzi stuff. I, I wasn't used to that so much, and that, and that was something to deal with. We'd known each other, you know, before we did the movie because we had the same manager, and uh, you know, I knew her when she was, you know, fairly, just kind of starting out, right. you know, really, and. And we're pals, and so we, we knew enough about each other before we did Pushing 10, really, that we could have a sense of humor about stuff. Right. Yeah, I guess we did. We must have done that in 97, actually, I think. Okay. But it came out, I think it's listed as 98 or 99. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I look back on those times very fondly. Yeah. I really do. And uh, even, the, even the paparazzi stuff, it was... <laughs> It was kind of silly, some of the stuff they would say, but, you know, we would just laugh about it usually. Just a very brief follow-up and then moving on from that, but, like, with some of the stuff that they tended to harp on, whether it was the, the you know, the little vials things or whatever, right. the tattoos, do you see why they harped on that stuff? Like, what was that about? Well, with the, with the press in general, the, you know, people always want to latch on to something. It's like, how, what's, the, what's the sound bite or what's the thing you say. I remember a friend of mine who was an actress once said they asked her what it was like working with a certain director and she said it was kind of like being on Jupiter and then Jupiter oh that sounds good let's write that down and the next thing you know all the articles of her it felt like being on Jupiter so you know you hear blood vial the next thing you know we were vampires we lived in the basement or in the, of a castle somewhere and all stuff I mean they take they would take things and make them into more than they were simply because that intrigued them and it, would, and it gave them a good in you know to a story and the stuff was really much more boring and n- <laughs> normal than what they made it sound like but it's all part of the legend as they say yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean so we it didn't bug us that much so for you the the thing I think that was important to you was to get back to directing mm-hmm. and then maybe more frustrating than any paparazzi or anything else was was what you had to deal with once you you make the movie you want to make with people that you want to make it with with all the pretty horses this adaptation of Cormac McCarthy right. and back with the Weinsteins and right. I guess it just did not go as as you would have hoped well if it, I guess if it weren't such a public thing you know it probably wouldn't have been looked at the way it was I mean you know the movie we put out was a good movie and it's just that the movie we made was a better movie I mean, if, if we do, do say so ourselves, uh, and I include the whole bunch who made it, mm-hmm. we made something really special. 
And I understand the economics. You know, they wanted it much shorter and everything. But it was never what it was in the in the papers. You know, there was never any like five hour cut or whatever they talked about. <laughs> that never existed. Right. I think my final cut was like two hours and forty two minutes. And, and so they just uh, cut it to two. Cut it to just under two. I think it's an hour fifty nine. And it was a co production with yeah. Miramax and Sony. And you know, in, in fairness to studios, it's their money. And it's their movie, and I was asked to do the movie by Mike Nichols, actually, you know, because he was a producer on it and everything. And, you know, it turned out to be a good movie that just didn't it didn't do well. And But for you, the frustration was that it wasn't sold as what it was. It was promoted as a love story. They right. changed the score, things that were integral to what you wanted it to be. But yeah, those are the kind of things, more more so than even the length. I mean, the things that really got me about that movie were the fact that it, that Daniel Lanois' incredibly haunting score was taken out. And Marty Stewart uh, did the score, who did a great job. You know, at least they let me pick another one of my guys to do it. But they wanted bigger music for a bigger movie. But the, the thing Dan did was really haunting. And it was one of those beautiful things I ever heard. And also, yeah, they, they promoted it. I think Titanic was so big yeah, that yeah. every poster was supposed to be the guy and the girl all airbrushed and staring <laughs> at each other. And they tried to make it into, you know, the, the movie was sold as a love story between Matt and Penelope, and that's really not what it was. Was the whole ordeal with this something that, that was frustrating enough that you're, you didn't want to Directing was not something you were to rush right yeah, back I, into? Yeah, I tucked my tail between my legs and, and didn't direct again for a long time. Right. Yeah. And, but... I guess, you know, the, the acting was never a more amazing year than, than the year after after that movie, where could there be more different movies than you do the Coen's Man Who Wasn't There, which is essentially like film noir. You do Bandits with for Barry Levinson, which is a comedy. Mm. And you do Monsters Ball, a drama for, I think it was first time Mark Forster was making yeah, a movie. Right. And all in a year. I mean, what a... what a showcase in one year. That was a wonderful period of time. That, that actually threw... Starting with Bandits and going through Man Who Wasn't There and Monsters Ball through like uh, the first Bad Santa mm -hmm. and the Alamo, in terms of the experience and what, how my life felt at that time, was, uh, it's hard to beat that, that period of time. Yeah. What made it just the, the partnership, the collaborations, or, or just that things were just clicking on all cylinders? Things clicked on all cylinders. The only one of those that wasn't really successful was the Alamo. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a gigantic movie and everything. And there was, I think there was some newspaper versus studio fighting going on at, the same, at that time. And so they kind of killed it before it even came out. And they would, you know, I think certain papers put out that their movie was in trouble and all this stuff. And that affects people, affects the audience. Yeah. And also, I just, I don't think people are as interested in history as they used to be. You know, I, I mean... I, I don't know a lot of you know 20 year olds are going to the theater right. and I don't I don't know how many of them really knew what the Alamo was or cared even you know? the 1960 John Wayne one had a hard time so sure, it was already absolutely. yeah the Alamo's always <laughs> been a story that they, they keep making and it never quite right. quite takes off but the experience of making it was a, a wonderful one and I loved working with John Lee Hancock and all the actors and being there in Texas doing it and all the historians said that we got it right that's a, so that's a, that's that meant something. a lot to us, yeah. you know. And we should not leave out one that was in that mix as well with those others. Love Actually as oh, yeah. has probably gets seen more than yeah. all other movies combined. Love Actually <laughs> yeah. plays a lot. Yeah, we we actually in my deal made it a, a, a thing where they wouldn't have me in, involved in any of the press for it or the that you didn't poster. Have to do it. 
Well, in other words, that we wanted it to be a surprise ah, that I was I playing the president. Right. So as a result, I'm not listed on the movie <laughs> or anything it. else. Right, right. It's like, hey, you know, this rascal will just show up as the president, <laughs> you know. But that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. I loved wor working with Hugh and Martine McCutcheon. She was uh, just good people. And Richard Curtis, terrific. And I, I had a good time. First time working in England as an actor. Yeah. Uh, I've been there on sets before, but it was my first time working there as an actor. And I loved, loved being there and doing that and working over there at... Shepperton Studios, which I'd seen on so many movies yeah. when I was a kid, yeah. you know, it was it was great. You just mentioned Bad Santa, and it seems like first of all that itself was kind of underestimated, and then it became this this nice big hit. But it also sparked what seems like a few, like a, a little mini era of grumpy SOBs. Is that right? I mean, if yeah. you think about yeah. Bad News Bears and Mister Woodcock and some of these, is that a kind of character that you get a kick out of playing? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, it, those are fun. They always are. I, I love doing Bad News Bears and Woodcock also. And then it also spawned some others, you know, that I wasn't in, you know. Right. They had so, yeah. bad teacher, bad grandpa, <laughs> bad, you know, plumber. Right. You uh, should you know, be getting all, royalties on these. You'd or, think so, yeah. yeah. Those are fun characters. But, you know, sometimes if you have something that's a hit, like Bad Santa was, the thinking in Hollywood is like, hey, that was successful. Let's do another one, right. you know. So, so all of a sudden, they will, every time there's a well, that kind of character, right. they call you. Uh, <laughs> so I did a couple more, and I thought that was enough. Yeah. You know. <laughs> one other thing that I I guess after the after the experience that you'd had with all the pretty horses, that was back in 2000. More than a decade goes by. You you've let it lie with directing. Then you. I guess finally decide, all right, it's enough time has passed and you're ready. It seems like you would have maybe just built yourself up to deal with all of that again. And then you have to deal with kind of a heartbreaking situation again with with just the whole experience there in 2012, Jane Mansfield's car. Yeah. Why does this happen to people who are, you know, it's not like you're an inexperienced guy or not. You've seen all this. Why do you have to even you have to deal with this crap? Well, it's because of the kind of things uh, I choose to do sometimes. I mean, you know, if I wanted to go out and direct Star Trek or something, right. I'd have a hit probably right. because people, it's got a built-in audience. I, I don't know that I'm that relevant as a director anymore because, like I said, my stuff's based on Southern literature, and I just don't know if that's, I may, I may be obsolete as a writer-director these days because those are the kinds of stories I want to tell. And, you know, the thing that happened with Jane Mansfield, a Russian company financed it. We had a hard time getting it financed, and they were big fans, and they wanted to do it. And they gave us the budget we needed, and they were really good to us. And it was a company that had—it wasn't just like an independent financier from there. It was a guy who actually had done a lot of humanitarian documentaries and all kinds of stuff, you know. And so there were film people, and and they loved the script, and they totally got it, which I thought was kind of odd that they got it and, <laughs> you know— no, actually, nobody around here did. And but, not only them, but you, it was playing at International Film Festival, Berlin and oh stuff. Oh, yeah, it went to Berlin. Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those movies where uh, it's funny how, you know, a blogger or two can kill a movie instantly at a film festival. You know, when they go in, they go, hey, I didn't like this. And then Do you think that's what happened? Well, I, I saw a couple of guys with backpacks running out after <laughs> about 10 minutes of the movie. You know what I mean? But they're usually people that don't like you to start with. but. Right. And then there are plenty of people that those kind of folks who have their own little website or whatever they do that, that really help you. Yeah. So and and I like to think that there are probably more of those to get than there than there are bad ones who just you know got to be up their ass about you. But <laughs> I mean the thing that happened with Jane Mansfield was simply that you know it's a movie that 
if I'd made that movie back when I made Sling Blade, it would, it would have been a success. But this is beyond that independent film renaissance and, and beyond the time when those kind of movies were getting good distribution and everything. And we didn't have a Miramax behind us or anything. So, And these days, just, that, that kind of content, is it really only survives maybe in pay cable and streaming? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If, if I had made that for Amazon... Maybe it would have been okay, right. but nobody ever saw it, and it, it didn't get any kind of play. And it was, yeah, it was a heartbreak because we loved that movie. Mm-hmm. And and now it, it happens all the time with these kind of movies. Later on, when they do play it on cable and people stuff, and then people love it, yeah. and they come up to you all the time and say, "Oh, I love that movie," but. You know, you can't get many people in the theater with those little movies like that anymore. So yeah, that was a shame. And I'm not saying I'll never direct again, but. I like directing. I don't like doing it that often because yeah. it takes up a lot of your, your life, you yeah. know. And uh, from the time of conception to the time you finish it up and publicize it and everything, it takes a year, year and a half out of your life. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll see if there's anything that I want to tell again and never know. Yeah. One other thing that's certainly changed since even, you know, since Sling Blade, let's say, which is only 21 years ago, is that somebody who's established themselves as a as a name in movies, it used to be you would never dream of going and doing television, right? right. And now it's the cool thing to do. And yeah. you first did it with Fargo, I think, mm-hmm. which was so well-received and, and has spawned its own reincarnations now. But what was it in your thought process that, that led you there? Well, I was a latecomer to it because I still, you know, I came up as an actor in the in, in the 80s. So Back then, if you were doing TV, you were a TV guy, you know. And now, the independent film business is on premium cable and streaming and all that. That's where it lives. And now, that's where everybody who, you know, considers themselves some type of artist, or you you really want to do good work, you know, that's where you go. Mm -hmm. The movie studios still make some really good movies, but they make a lot of big event movies. And that hasn't really been my bread and butter, Mm -hmm. so... I don't get called that much for the big movies anyway, and once in a blue moon I do, and I just feel maybe I'm not right for the part, you know, and don't really have a lot of interest in playing like the mayor and and some superhero movie or something (laughs) like that. You know, I'm too old to play the superhero, and yeah, I mean, doing Goliath with Amazon and doing Fargo with FX, it's it's been a wonderful thing. I'm able to do a 10-hour independent film now, yeah, and that's that's what everybody's doing. I mean, you. Like off the top of your head, how many film actors are doing this stuff now? I mean, everybody wants to do it. Yeah, it's amazing. With Fargo, just before we move on from that, this was a guy who's essentially, I guess it would, you'd say a, a hitman who's sort of like the like the devil and your character, Lorne. And I just wonder, you hadn't really played an out-and-out bad guy in many years, really probably since One False Move. Right. You know, what What did you make of the experience of, first of all, just playing somebody over the course of 10 hours or whatever it was with, with Fargo? I mean, that's, what do you do differently? What can you do differently as far as your job and shading things and doing things? Is it, is it, a, is it different than doing a, a movie for the actor? Not really. I approach everything as a movie, you know, and now that it is that way with the, with the Amazons and FXs and all those, it just gives you an opportunity to do a movie and stay in a movie mindset and yet reach all these people with it. I'd say in terms of the actual work uh, as an actor, 
the only difference is is that it gives you a longer time to develop a character, um, and it's good for the audience too. You can't make a ten-hour independent film and show it in a theater, but wow, now you got the opportunity to actually do that. Right, and people might yeah. watch it in one day the way they, it goes they, now. Exactly, yeah. and most people I know will at least watch it uh, at you know two or three yeah. episodes at a time, and. Uh, Usually we'll watch it all within a week or so. Some people, like you said, watch the whole thing. <laughs> but at the end of a movie that's an hour and 45 minutes or whatever, sometimes you wish you could just keep playing that character. Yeah. Just think of all the other possibilities. And in this world, you get to. Some so. writers have said that the other thing that, that is freeing about doing TV in, in long format like this is that you don't have to make... You don't have to win over the audience for, with the character. It doesn't have to be likable or, you know, whatever for a long time, if at all. Is that something that you think about as well that, you know, the, I mean, we are people say this is like the era of the TV antihero. So many of these guys are not likable. And yet yeah. people are on board enthusiastically for years and years with the shows. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing to be able to do that and be received by the audience that way. I mean, because they can see that. uh you know, you have to have everything in a movie or a TV show. You got to have the bad guy, and you got to have the neighbor and the good guy, and the hero, or whatever it is. And a lot of times in movies, people do tend to pay more attention to the hero. You know, and for some reason in this, the, I guess they're realizing this is such an integral part of the of the show. This is a, a character you really need, and, and you don't you want anything to happen to him because right. you want this mystery to keep going, right. you know. And I know people who love Lauren Malvo. <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, it's the favorite character in the thing. And right. they, but also, I think a lot of that was because of the sort of the dark humor in it too. You know, you, you see that. I mean, just like with David Lynch's stuff or uh, the Coen Brothers mm-hmm. or. Uh, Jim Jarmusch, you know, people like that, and people that I've always admired, you know, that made movies like that. You know, now they got the new Twin Peaks going know, on again, which is pretty, uh, pretty nice. And you mentioned Jarmusch. We should say you did Dead Man with him twenty two years ago. Yeah, I barely even ago. remember that. Yeah. I yeah, went out there for a couple of nights <laughs> right. in the middle of the desert somewhere right. and you know, played that weird character. Yeah, I, I, Lauren Malvo was an interesting character to play. I loved it, and what was great about it was I. You could read the scripts, and, you, and there was never a moment as the writer in me that wanted to change anything. You know, I mean, I, the way I played the character might have been a little different than what uh, what they'd originally uh, thought. Maybe uh, you know, you bring your own bits and pieces to it. But in terms of the writing, I mean, I, I just went and did it. Well, people loved that, obviously. Golden Globe there for that, and and all kinds of other acclaim and accolades. Was was that experience with Fargo? instrumental in making you decide to go on and soon after do Goliath or was that already in the picture Fargo absolutely influenced me when I was offered Goliath there's no question I thought wow this was a great experience and I loved the character in Goliath so I thought how lucky am I that I get to go into another character and in this format and do it again I I, I love every minute of it and what was it about Goliath in which you're we should remind or people who haven't yet had a chance to see it. it I, I'm I've loved it. It's you're playing a guy named Billy. I'd seen it just for years in interviews. You'd said you were always kind of intrigued by the idea of playing a lawyer. Yeah. You did it in sort of a cameo in The Judge, where you were again with Duval. But right. what what is it about a, playing a lawyer that that appealed to you? Well, I think lawyers and actors have a have a real 
similarity, you know. I mean, uh, lawyers kind of have to be actors yeah. in a courtroom. <laughs> lawyers always made a good part for an actor, you know, whether it's Spencer Tracy or Gregory Peck, any of these guys, that, you know, when we watch the old movies. A lawyer has to give a performance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes actors have to be lawyers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're dealing with, right. so, you know, the brass or whatever, you know. Right. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great part to play, lawyers. I don't know. It, it puts you on a pretty terrific stage. So for anybody who ever would want to know what I'd be like as a lawyer, this is kind of <laughs> it. Because I, when I read this script, I thought, wow, that is kind of what I, I, I relate to this guy. And so if I were a lawyer... Yeah, this would uh, be you. And I kind of feel like one now, I, you know, after doing this for a while. But right. I kind of play this character as myself in a lot of ways. Well, that was that was something I was really interested to come across because if maybe we can break down some of the ways that you actually relate personally to this guy, apart from sharing a name. Mm-hmm. For one thing, I, I'd read you you like living in hotels. This guy lives yeah. in a hotel. That's yeah, right. And the other thing is you, you, you've said you don't like schmoozing, small talk stuff. Here was the actual quote. Quote, I don't like to be alone, but I don't like to be with people. Close quote. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is a guy who essentially treats as his office a bar. So he's out there with everybody, but they yeah. don't, you know, stay away, basically, right? Yeah. What else do we have? He's not really going to put up with much bullshit. I've heard that that may apply to you as well. In certain instances, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, am I missing anything else? Well, I mean, I think I have a sense of justice that doesn't necessarily go by the norm you know I I mean we have rules and we have to have rules you know and I respect that but at the same time the law is not always fair Mm -hmm. and I think that this guy loves the law and he loves being a, a lawyer and yet he tries to do it in a way that you can have actual justice in it you know and where it's not always he's not just out there to trick people and to to win his case but there's something thrilling about it to him. You know, he, he does like to win. I think in his heart, he only wants to win when he's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel that. He also seems to, in his own way, champion other underdogs. I mean, if you look at the people sure. that he's surrounding himself with, the, I guess you would say, Hooker and some right. of those other people. I mean, these sure. are, they actually, he gives them a chance and they often perform. Yeah. So I mean, it's like as a director, I always like to cast people that you normally wouldn't or right. give somebody a chance who's not famous or somebody who hasn't even been in a movie or right. whatever, you know. And, uh, yeah, this guy kind of likes to <laughs> – he doesn't want to be in there with a bunch of other, you know, arrogant, Stuffy guys. rich lawyer guys. <laughs> he, you know, he, it's like well, he finds these couple of gals. It's like, you know, come work with me. You know, we'll be all right. Well, in the larger Billy Bob Thornton ooh. It's not inconsistent if with a lot of the, the great roles because you've played a lot of guys who are, quote, a guy who on the surface appears to be one thing and yet he's really another, close quote. That's something that you've right. said in instances well before Goliath. Sure. Why might that be? Well, I just think, I think people, no matter who it is, you know, on the surface, I just think we judge people pretty quickly. And this is, a, particularly this day and time, it's a very judgmental society we live in. And I always like to see the the person who, at the end of the day, you find out, wow, there's a lot more to them than, than you thought. You know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and a, a chance. And, you know, sometimes people from the underbelly of life, you never know why they're there. I always like to explore those people. And people who are trying to redeem themselves or 
make something out of themselves or stay afloat, whatever it is, you know, and those are more interesting people to play. I mean, who wants to play somebody who doesn't have any flaws and who, you know, is perfect and came up the easy way? I mean, that's, to me, it doesn't interest me. Right. We should note season one of Goliath, it's been out for a while now. You get another Golden Globe for that. It was great and a nice way to highlight a show when there's 450 scripted series out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, it seems to be a nice way to tell people this is one worth looking at. And back for the second season, how far into it are you at the moment? Like, which episode uh, are you We're doing? on the first episode. First episode yeah, we're, today. Yeah, we're, we're actually shooting day seven today. We have a uh, good fortune to have Walter Hill directing it, oh, you know, wow. a great yeah, film director, you know, and he's uh, directing the first episode here. So it's been really interesting because he and I tried to work together before years ago. He had wow. a movie that never came about, and we talked about it. We used to be neighbors, uh, you know, we lived down the, uh, or at least within a few blocks of yeah. each other. So we tried to get this movie made, and years and years ago, I think back in the 80s sometime, I auditioned for a voice part in a movie that he was doing wow. where they needed just a little bit of uh, looping work done because yeah. <laughs> I guess an actor wasn't available right. for it or whatever and I did three or four lines for him he, he picked me out all these guys there and, <laughs> and I told him about it and he didn't remember this it this was pre yeah. like sling blade and oh all that? yeah yeah oh, this was God. like in uh, yeah, in the 80s sometime and <laughs> yeah. I went in to audition my voice and, and the movie took place in Texas so he goes yeah this boy's good just use him and he said well there's a lot of other people out there and he goes tell him to go home I got my guy right. <laughs> and I just did three or four lines you know that's so for funny. him yeah so I guess finally, where does it go from here? This show could go, response to it could go on for years. Are you up for years more of, of this particular character in this show? And and then just big picture, is there, you know, here we are 21 years again after Sling Blade, where, which opened up a, a whole new world, I guess, for you. What have you not yet gotten to do that you still want to do? I don't know. I, I kind of like the mystery of it, you know. We'll see. I know that I'm going to keep touring with the Boxmasters. I'm going to keep making records with them. And I know I'm going to do Goliath for this season, and hopefully we'll do well enough to where we can do another one. The great thing about it is that I can do Goliath and still have time to do a movie in there and do a tour and make a record. So if I do one movie and Goliath and make a record and do a tour right. every year I, that's a pretty full life especially when you got three kids <laughs> you know because uh Keeps yeah, you busy. yeah my boys are 20 22 and 23 and they're you know, of course they got their own lives right. now, their own apartments and that <laughs> stuff you know but then my daughter bella is going to be 13 in september right. so are any of them following in your path here uh willie my oldest son yeah. i have with my daughter i have a scientist and writer Okay. That's what she uh, wants to be. Right. And Harry is interested in like security and police work and that kind of stuff. And then Willie, he works in special effects. He builds zombies and vampires and, you know, oh, he just worked on some Klingons recently. And so, yeah, he does, he does special effects makeup oh, and that kind great. of stuff. Well, you must be very proud. And yeah, I, I thank you very much for doing this. Thank, thank you. you for having me.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.